Hello there. Welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot, the podcast that reboots your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher, and this is episode number 154. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about bison genetics, future profitability of ranching and land management, soil biology, and direct marketing. But first, this episode is sponsored by Land Trust. You've heard me talk about Land Trust for the past few weeks, and I've been busy answering messages from spring turkey hunters. Spring is about here, and spring is more than just about turkey hunting on Land Trust. I was just on their website browsing for other ideas about things to offer on my own ranch. Did you know you can book a DIY four-wheeler adventure on a 3,100-acre Montana ranch, tour hemp production in Kansas, fossil hunt in Nebraska, visit a rabbit tree in Oklahoma, go hiking in Wyoming, take a pasture-to-plate tour in South Dakota, or an off-road vehicle adventure in Idaho? Stargazing, birdwatching, horseback riding, mushroom foraging, camping in tents and intense camping, camping in RVs, you name it, Land Trust has it. If you can think of something to do outdoors, I bet you'll find it on Land Trust. There's so much more than just hunting on Land Trust. Their team is standing by, ready to help you list your property and generate some extra income from all the resources under your management. Get started today by clicking the link in the show notes or visiting landtrust.com reboot. Link in the show notes. Again, that's landtrust.com slash reboot. All right, support for this episode also provided by Grassroots Carbon. Grassroots Carbon is accepting more acres for 2024, and right now is a great time to get in touch with the team at Grassroots and see what a carbon storage agreement looks like. I can tell you what, for, what it looks like from my end, and it's pretty nice. It all starts with an email or a phone call. The team at Grassroots will take a look at your operation using satellite data to see if it's a good fit. Ranches with good carbon storage potential can earn over $20 an acre, most often with a few simple management changes, if anything. Carbon prices are only going to go up, and with grassroots, when the price goes up, you get paid more. That's how it works. If you're worried about all the indemnity or risk, grassroots takes care of that so you don't have to stress. Just about the only scenario where you'd owe money is if you deliberately did something to release the carbon you stored, like plow up the range. And I don't plan up plant. I do not plan on plowing up any native range or even anything that dad planted back to grass that was once farmed. So not much of a risk. It was an easy choice to make. When you're ready to see what Grassroots Carbon can do for you, go to www.grassrootscarbon.com reboot or click the link in the show notes. That's grassrootscarbon.com reboot. I can't forget about all my amazing patrons on patreon.com and the subscribers on Spotify. You guys rock. Last week, there was a McDonald's ad in the podcast. Guys, I have no control over that. I get no say in what ads get run during the automated ad breaks. I'd rather not have them just because there are things like McDonald's ads, but the podcast does cost some money and some time. I set a new goal of 20 new subscribers on Spotify or patrons on Patreon. If we get that, I'll just turn off the embedded ads. You guys won't have to listen to it. Just what I do in the intro. So. No more interruptions for ads you don't care about. Just need a few more sign up on Patreon and, or subscribe on Spotify. To do that and help keep Ranching Reboot on the air, navigate to www.patreon.com slash Rancher. Link in the show notes. There's also a Spotify link in the show notes. If you're having any trouble getting signed up for any of that, please drop me an email. Um, as I said in my special announcement last week, the best way to email me is through the website, redhillsrancher.com. There's a contact us thingy up there click that fill it out send it to me and i guarantee it lights up my email inbox and i won't miss it all right 
Today on the podcast, we're talking to a bison producer from Canada. We're going to get deep down into the weeds of holistic management and soil function and ecosystem processes. My guest today from Sweet Grass Bison in Southwest Alberta, Cody Spencer. You know the deal. Here we go. Cody Spencer, welcome to Ranching Reboot. How are you today, sir? Doing well, Brian. Thanks to thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad to have you here. Glad to have you here. Uh, so I see you've got a little fire going back there. Um, it's not too cold where I'm at here in middle of February. Where are you at? So I'm in southwest Alberta, Canada, which we're about an hour north of Glacier National Park in Montana. So a lot of people have visited there and visited the Rocky Mountain front. And so we're basically where the, where the North, Northern Great Plains slam up against the Rockies. Okay. And, you know, I find it's interesting. So I, I worked in Texas for a few years and have a ton of friends across the U.S. and, um, you know, traveled quite a bit. And, and I find that Americans don't have the best grasp of geography of canada we tend to lump it into just one big mass and it's like you know it's a huge place and so i like to describe alberta as say if alaska and montana got together and they had a kid gave it up for adoption and it got raised by aunt colorado and uncle texas and maybe hung out with uh, its delinquent cousins kansas and oklahoma okay so Alberta, that's like right north of Montana to the west of you would be Saskatchewan and then British Columbia, correct? To the west is British Columbia. So we're, so the Rockies basically are the, the western border of Alberta. And then BC is basically mountains, forest, a little bit of agriculture. And then to the east, we have Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And Saskatchewan and Manitoba and Alberta make up the Canadian prairies, right? And so, you know, where we are in Alberta, we where I'm at in the foothills, we kind of have a bit of a tall grass prairie regime, like a black soil. It's very narrow. Like we have this sort of fertile strip along the foothills of the Rockies that gets, you know, enough precipitation. Um, growing conditions are still pretty good. And you take that further north around Edmonton and you have what's called the Aspen Parkland. And so these beautiful black soils with, you know, Aspen groves interspersed and uh, you know, incredible sort of agricultural agricultural area. A lot of it's been farmed and plowed up. Here in the foothills, it hasn't because of topography. So we've got sort of a, you know, we've got a more of a ranching culture here in the foothills. And then, yeah, and then you follow that east in, into Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And, um, you know, there are some pretty beautiful, uh, fertile agricultural regions here. A lot of, a lot of potential, but I mean, We've got areas as well in southeastern Alberta, southwest Saskatchewan, sort of an extension of like northern Montana, western South Dakota, like pretty tough uh, air type country. So there's a bit of a bit of a range here. Northern Plains, just a lot colder. Yeah, a lot colder for sure. Okay. So what, um, well, your operation is called Sweetgrass Bison. 
So how did you get into bison? So how did I get into bison? Well, I guess starting with my childhood, I grew up on a, on a family farm, sort of, sort of a mixed operation. My parents were more into the cropping side, uh, more grain, wheat, canola, some of those things. And, and so that farm was right on, on the Montana border, uh, just north of uh, Sweetgrass country, cut bank, uh, east of the Rockies. And, and through the 90s and 2000s, like this system that they were in, I mean, they, you know, the, and this is getting into some pretty arid country. I mean, uh, 10, 11, 12, maybe 13 inches of precip and cropping, you know, when they homesteaded those areas, the wind blows like crazy. And so when they tilled up that country and blew a lot of that topsoil away, it's, it's tough, you know, organic matter depletion, similar to, you know, the entire Great Plains, right? And so by the time the 90s came around and the chemical systems were fully entrenched, um, it it wasn't really working. You know, my dad recognized that and he, he said, oh man, we, we need to, we need to either figure something out or we need to get out of this. And by that time, you know, Gabe Brown was still sort of cutting his teeth and regenerative stuff that that wasn't even a thing, especially in the cropping world. Right. And so we had, there was a sort of an, a big event that happened within our family and they decided to sell the farm after a, a big drought in 2002. And, you know, I was young, a young kid, 12 years old, maybe, but that was everything I knew growing up on that farm. And, you know, just the sense of freedom of being outside. And for me, I, I had a couple pretty transformative experiences out on the grasslands because we still have, you know, some pretty large intact blocks of, of native grasslands when you get out on them and you look around and. You know, you could see for 50 miles and not see, you know, barely any sign of human activity. Just, you know, quite something, right? Really strikes you. So that that really sort of seeded a deep love of grasslands into into me as a kid. And when we moved away, I was devastated. And we moved, you know, we moved about an hour away outside of a small city of about 100,000 people uh, called Lethbridge. And, you know, I was disconnected through my teenage years from the land from agriculture and it was actually through getting back into hunting uh that reconnected me to the land because we always hunted you know on the farm it was it was just sort of a tradition you know we'd go out get a deer get an elk and make sausage that type of thing and I always had such fond memories of that and so i started hanging around with my buddies who who still you know were out on their farms and ranches and going hunting out there and spending time with them and i just thought man i gotta figure out a way to get back involved in this there's nothing that makes me feel as good as being out on the prairie and just being out with animals and so i had to figure out a way and along that along that sort of journey i i picked up a book called portraits of the bison by this guy named wes olson and Wes is, uh, he's sort of a bison ecologist up here in Alberta and uh, amazing man who's since become a good friend and a mentor of mine. And I just became fascinated by these animals and, you know, because it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you see them around, right? You see a herd here and there, you know, it's like, okay, well, I know that, 
I know that they're not totally extinct and you always hear the stories of them, you know, running in the tens of millions, maybe right. up to a million type of thing. But, you know, where, why aren't there, why aren't there more of them? Like what's going on here? And there, it was just a question, sort of a curiosity that I had to follow because I, I became captivated by them and started to seek out places who, you know, ranches that were raising them at the time. And this would have been, uh, this would have been say a dozen years ago, decade ago type of thing. And so I started visiting ranches and just, you know, the first time I got into the middle of a bison herd, I was just blown away. It was like, wow, you know, everything I loved about the grasslands. Plus you've got this, I mean, the, the charismatic megafauna that it's got this ability to just captivate people. And, and so I, there's sort of a running joke in, in the bison industry. Once you catch the, the bison bug, you, you've got it for life. And that's sort of what happened to me. Um, I, I've always thought that's because once you buy a bunch of them, nobody wants to buy them from you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the bison business seems like it's pretty easy to get into, but not quite as easy to get out of. It can, it can be, yeah. There, we, we could get into some nuances about the differences between bison industry and, and the cattle industry, but they're, yeah, they're, you know, depending on the, depending on the cycle, which I don't think the cycle tracks kind of like the cattle, the cattle cycle does, uh, it can be difficult to unload bison. There's not, there's not a sale barn around every corner. Let's just put it that way. Right. Um, I, I think, do you know Moritz Espy down on the triple seven in South Dakota? Sure. Yeah. He told me that if they went to do the bison slaughter at the same rate as we do beef cattle, that the bison would be done in about two hours. Like the whole year's worth of bison would yeah. be harvested in like two hours at the same rate that we harvest beef. Yeah. So the, there's, there's, do you have any idea how many bison are in North America or or maybe just in Canada? Yeah, they say there's about 500,000 bison total. Uh, 30,000 of those are in like parks, you know, wildlife refuges, things like that. And the rest are, you know, four, say 400 and some thousand on private ranches. Is that just Canada or is that all North America? That's all of North America. Half a million bison in to yeah. think, well, is it uh, around 130 years ago? there was probably somewhere close to 60, 40 to 60 million of them in the plains. Yep. That's almost mind boggling. Oh yeah. You can't, you can't even compre comprehend that, that slaughter and, and you know, the impact of that on, I mean, the great plains in general. And yeah, so it's, it's very, it's a tiny, tiny little piece of sort of the agricultural industry, but uh, you know, a niche that I think is, is pretty strong and solidified at this point, like back in the nineties. And I mean, clear back to say the 1960s, I, I do some, some work consulting work with the Durham ranch in Wyoming. And they're one of the first, uh, bison ranches really in, in North America and got into holistic management in the 1980s and some of those things. And, and they, I was reading a book. I actually have it right here called Time of the Buffalo. It's from the 1970s and it lists all the herds uh, that existed at that time. And there was only about 30,000 buffalo total in the 1970s. 
And the Durham Ranch had 2,000 of those. And so they had a significant portion, percentage of the overall herd in the world, which is quite interesting. And that and that's interesting because I wanted to maybe like kind of go down this pathway of bison genetics because with only a herd of a half a million animals in 2023, 2024 timeframe, and like you were talking about back in this, back in the seventies, there was a genetic bottleneck. Oh like, yeah. For, for almost a hundred years, there was, there were just weren't many bison running around and it doesn't seem like there was a whole lot of, you know, transfer of animals between those isolated herds. So the question, like, and maybe you can, you know, whatever this you can speak to or not, are we, are we bottlenecked on our bison genetics? Is Canada, is Canada different or are things starting to turn around with, with the genetic bottleneck and getting more breeding animals? Yeah, I would say that, you know, that's an interesting question because I, I don't know, yes or no, like there was a huge bottleneck that that's for sure. And there was six herds that you can trace basically every single buffalo you know, some combination of the sort. So, you know, Yellowstone, of course, was one of them. There was a herd that was captured out of the wild called the Pablo Allard herd on the Alberta-Montana border. That became the Pablo Allard herd in the Flathead Valley, which was at uh, the turn of the turn of the 20th century, the biggest herd in the world of about 600. Fascinating story for people to look up. Pablo Allard, Buffalo Roundup. They had to Theodore Roosevelt opened up the the homesteading uh, into the Flathead Reservation around the turn of the century. So they came to him and said, hey, man, you got to get your buffalo off of, you know, they're free ranging in the valley. You got to get your buffalo off and sold. And he said, well, do you want to buy them? And they said, no, we're we're good. We've got Yellowstone. We've We've got maybe 50 animals in Yellowstone. We're good. So he sold them to the Canadian government. And over the course of the next six uh, to seven years they had cowboys you know say 15 to 20 cowboys on horseback every day rounding these buffalo up and driving them to the train station at Ravalli, montana and and uh, loading them on train cars and shipping them north and so that that at that time was one of the biggest source herds for the rest of the, the nation there was of course uh charles goodnight in texas the goodnight uh herd in Palo. Daryl Canyon, uh, Buffalo Jones, I believe he was from Kansas and he, he salvaged a couple and then one in South Dakota and one in Manitoba. And basically that was, that was it. And those were all aside from Yellowstone, just little handfuls of animals. And so you can imagine the, uh, you know, the bottleneck that, that happened. And I mean, it's interesting. I don't know what that impact, like I'm not a geneticist and I don't know what really that impact that has on the species. But one thing that's been interesting the last couple of years, uh, Texas A&M, Dr. Jim Durr out of Texas A&M, he's a, he's a, focuses on bison genetics. And they came out with a study this last year that showed that all bison, even the Yellowstone, like there's been this narrative that, oh, Yellowstone are the only, one of the only pure herds left in the world. They found that even the Yellowstone herd is has a tiny, tiny little bit of cattle genetics within I, them. I would. I'm glad you kind of went there because that was kind of in the back of my mind to you know to say something about the bovine DNA contamination in in the North American bison. 
and okay, maybe contamination is not the right word. And I think, I mean, what obviously what happened in my mind is during that time of genetic bottlenecking, when we were down to basically six herds of bison and just, you know, a few thousands of animals, I, I, it, it made sense to inject a little bit of bovine DNA in there and put cow, you know, maybe put some cows out there with them or put a bull in there with them just because they needed to breed animals and they need to have a higher conception rate to keep, you know, to keep those animals alive. I can see that. Um, and I, so for just so you know, I think people that listen to the podcast have heard me say this several times, but one of Ted Turner's ranches is just down the road from me, like 15 miles south. Uh, they call it the Z bar. The manager down there is a fantastic human. And he's a, he's a great guy. And what I've seen him do down there in the 20 years since Turner's taking it over is they've really turned that ranch around. But I remember one of the things that he said is they've, they've tested their bison herd and they know that they have bovine DNA in it. Mm. They know that. And I remember him, I remember him telling me several years ago that, uh, he'd just come back from a bison association meeting and they were talking about, you know, doing the DNA testing and the government was like, no, we don't need to test the Yellowstone herd. Yellowstone herd's pure. We know it's pure. We don't need mm. to test it. And Keith was like, that's bullshit. We know that's got bovine DNA in it because we've got animals from there that had bovine DNA in them. We know it's bullshit. They're lying to everybody. And I think it's just, I guess it's, uh, it's nice that they're not hiding and they're not trying to hide that anymore that they have come out and said, eh, yeah, maybe we got a little bit of bovine DNA in our Yellowstone bison. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I don't know. I, I still really don't know where, where I stand on it because it's such a complex, uh, you know, of course you've got the biological genetic side, but then there's the sort of, uh, you know, what are the implications of that on, on the species as wildlife? What are the implications of the species as a, you know, a, like livestock essentially on ranches. But I think, you know, what it opens up is a conversation that goes beyond like, oh, this, this animal's pure and this animal's not. And so this animal that has a little bit of cattle genetics, it's no good. So, you know, maybe, maybe it shifts the, you know, what we look for in, in bison, you know, whatever that might be. I mean, of course, conservation herds have a sort of a different, you know, set of goals around what they're trying to achieve than, than a ranch herd that needs to be profitable and, um, you know, is maybe more closely resembles cattle ranching, but I just, yeah, I think it opens up more possibilities to, to manage for different things like fertility. And I mean, you know, just adapt, you know, adaptability in, in our modern context, really. Yeah. Like I said, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just, that's what, that's what had to be done to save the species or that's what the people that were trying to save yeah. the species, that's what they did. And yeah. we still have bison. And if they hadn't have done it, we might not have bison now. That's right. You know, and, and there was pretty uh, intentional interbreeding and actually still is to this day for beefalo to, you know, back in the day, they thought that they could create sort of this ultimate range animal where they've got the, you know, the docile characteristics of cattle and some of the, you know, easier to manage uh attributes but you've got the hardiness and you've got the ability to forage and thrive out on the range of from the buffalo and 
And what they found was some of that did transfer over and it, you know, the meat was good and some of those things, but the fertility was just garbage and that, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't run an operation uh, with these animals uh, interbreeding. Basically, it's not economically viable. Right. I, I kind of remember that study and maybe looking into it a little bit. And it seems like, like the fertility was an issue even to the third generation. Like they just couldn't get their fertility numbers up even after the third generation. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. There are some people doing it out there, but you know, and a, another common thing too, is there's also the subspecies of wood bison that are in North, Northern Canada uh, into Alaska. And people are, cr people cross those with plains bison to create sort of a, you know, hybrid, bigger, larger animal. And I don't know. I don't know what the impacts of that are going to be over the, over the course of generations, you know, as far as like the idea is to create a bigger animal that puts on more weight, but you know, what are, what are you losing in the plains adapted genetics that have been here for, you know, several hundred thousand years? I don't know. Can you maybe explain the difference between the two, the two subspecies or subtypes? Yeah. So wood bison. So plant, I'll start with plains bison because that's, that's the subspecies that everybody knows. Everybody sees it's, you know, it's widespread across America and into Canada. Um, plains bison are a bit shorter. Their, their hump is situated just kind of above the, above the front legs, more kind of centered above the front legs. And so their head sits a bit lower. Uh, they weigh a little bit less. And I mean, essentially they're built for having their head down and grazing across the plains and you know moving snow out of the way to to access feed and some of those things uh wood bison they are a subspecies that, that live in the boreal forest so mostly treed environments where they're you know they're doing more browsing in trees they, they still their dominant diet is is still grasses and sedges and forbs and some of those things but they you know they live in a much different environment so they're taller their hump sits ahead of their front legs and they tend to be a bit darker than plains bison. Okay. And, you know, they're, they're closely enough where, you know, there's no issues with them interbreeding and, you know, remaining fertile and, and some of those things. But there are, when you look at them, like if you Google wood bison, it'll be like, well, that's, that's sort of a different looking animal. Did. Okay. So going back to the the bottleneck of bison what, are they lumped into the the whole rest of those six herds was that one of those herds of wood bison no so they would be they would be separate yeah okay. they would be separate and uh you know to follow that pablo allard story from montana where they where they rounded them up 600 head shipped them up to a park here in alberta and basically over the course of the 1930s they mismanaged this herd of buffalo to the point where the range was so overgrazed, the herd had tuberculosis, brucellosis. It was just a disaster. And so they, the Canadian officials thought it would be a good idea to, well, we need to get rid of these animals. So why don't we ship them up north to a place called Wood Buffalo National Park? That's a, at the very north end of Alberta. It's 10 times the size of Yellowstone. Just this massive area of, you know, it's a national park, but protected wood bison range so they thought yeah let's just send them up there and and turn them out loose they'll never you know they'll never in, interact with the wood bison up there yeah uh, 
That's yeah. immediately what happened, of course, right? And so they they mixed in, started interbreeding, gave that herd uh, brucellosis, tuberculosis, total disaster. And so they thought that they had actually lost the wood bison species totally until for about 20 years. And then I believe it was like 1959, biologists flying a plane in the an extreme remote corner of the park found an isolated herd of 200 head that uh, that had escaped that hybridization. So so essentially the wood bison descends from that those 200 animals. So, you know, I suppose that's even more of a, a genetic bottleneck because it's only one population. That's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Why do they call it sweetgrass country? Sweetgrass, uh, sweetgrass hills in Montana, northern Montana. So anybody that knows the uh, sort of the golden triangle, northern Montana wheat country, there's a series of uh, mountain ranges, isolated mountain ranges that dot the landscape. And the sweetgrass hills are one of those. And, and where I grew up in, on my farm in, in uh, Alberta, they were prominent, you know, they're right on the border. So you know, they kind of are the landmark for, for our country. So it's just a place that, that means a lot to me. And, um, you know, when I decided that I'm going to get involved in ranching and bison, I'm going to figure out how to do it somehow, you know, essentially first generation again. Uh, I mean, definitely all my previous generations were involved in agriculture, but we sold out and, you know, figuring out how to get involved from scratch. And so I went to work for on a big cattle ranch in that kind of right on those sweet grass hills out, out in the middle of nowhere on the Montana border. And, um, really to, to gain ranching and livestock experience and kind of cut my teeth, you know, back into, back into that world. So I could, my plan was always to get into bison. And so I spent some time on that ranch and just, you know, just a place that means a lot to me. Okay. The, uh, I, I was kind of wondering, like, what was the, what's the genesis of the name? Like, why is it specifically called sweetgrass? Is there something in the grass? Is it, is that a name that the Europeans gave to the area? Or is that a name that you, that the Europeans took from the indigenous? I believe, so I've done a little bit of reading. I believe that it was from, uh, from Blackfoot, uh, some sort of Blackfoot name for the area. And, and of course, sweetgrass is a, is a species of grass that's braided and used in, in ceremonies, uh, by many indigenous people. So whether or not, whether or not the sweetgrass hills name comes from that, the sweetgrass is a very important plant for, for indigenous people. Okay. Okay. There's just, just a little curiosity I needed to satisfy there. Yeah, for sure. So why, let me, let me see if I have this right. Your family had kind of a more conventional cropping operation till, till around 2002, right? And then you guys kind of lost that operation and now you're back raising bison. So it, maybe walk me through some of the stuff. I mean, you did say that you wanted to get back on the land. But why specifically bison? What about bison attracted you? Yeah. Well, when I experienced being in those first few bison herds, like being right in the middle of them, it, they 
they had some sort of an energy or they they made me feel a way that I had never felt before, you know, being in, you know, working with cattle, um, just any other animal or something about them. It's really tough to describe uh, what that feeling is, but they have some sort of an energy like they sort of a, I don't know, they're smart. They're smart. They've got a high level of intelligence. They're so adapted to their environment. I mean, to just to see them, you know, when it's minus 30, uh, you know, 40 below is where we run in Celsius and you guys run in Fahrenheit. 40 below is where those two cross over. And when you see a herd of buffalo out in 40 below in a blizzard, I mean, they they just, they couldn't they be care. more content. They don't care. They, it really it doesn't even phase them at all. In fact, it seems like they love it. And to see those types of things just sort of blew me away, like the resilience of of an, of an animal like that. And you know, though, when I was uh, working on the cattle ranch, gaining experience to to then move into bison, you know, I started to see some of these issues around calving, and you know, the amount of feed and just the overheads required to to run these cow herds up in this sort of you know pretty extreme country when it comes to the cold at least right and to see the way that the buffalo they just you know have no issues with that at all you know calving calving is like you know i talked to some rancher friends is oh we're gearing up for calving that you won't see me for you know, a month and a half or whatever. It's full on 24 hours a day with Buffalo. You don't need, you don't need to do anything like there's zero work. You just, you know, make sure they're in a place where they've got good feed and they're not being stressed and bothered and they'll just do it themselves. And there's almost never any issues with calving and, and some of those things. And, um, you know, seeing, seeing and hearing other people's stories about, you know, when you have a late spring storm come in, they can sense that that storm's coming in and actually delay calving until the storm passes. And then all of a sudden it passes and pop, you know, you've got calves coming everywhere. And some of those sort of uh, intuitive, um, I don't know, I guess you could call it wisdom that they have for, for their environment. Gen genetic wisdom that they've stored up over thousands of years being adapted to living on this continent that bovines just simply don't have. That's right. That's right. And I mean, like, of course, we can see people start to develop uh, cattle genetics to be more adapted to this type of environment, but it was just so apparent to me. And, you know, another thing, Brian, was getting in and starting from nothing. I was researching, and this was before I discovered any sort of regenerative holistic management, ranching for profit, maybe give a chance. Um, that okay. So if I'm going to do this, how am I going to actually get involved in it? And direct marketing seemed to be like a, a way for me to do that. An avenue for me as somebody who didn't have land and didn't have infrastructure and didn't have huge financial backing. So I looked at it as a way to diversify myself from, you know, the other people that might be selling beef and and some of those things. And, and I think, you know, I think that was a, a sort of a good angle. And, and at the time, I guess that would have been 2014, there was starting to be more of a demand for it. Like it wasn't such a weird protein, like back in the, 
like you heard back in the early days, you'd hear them being lumped in with like ostrich and like alligator as like exotic species. <laughs> well, like, I mean, 20 or 30 years ago, there was a lot less bison in the world. That's right. Yeah. And that has really changed over the last 20 years and people, you know, recognize it and understand that, oh, okay. You know, people raise it for, raise them for meat and some of those things. Ted's Montana Steakhouse. When Ted Turner st opened up that line of, of Ted's Montana Steakhouses that, for clarity, I never really ate in one of them, but I, my understanding is they serve like bison burgers and bison steak. Yep. And it isn't Ted Turner, like, it, if we listed the, all the people in the country that, in North America that owned bison, it would be like Ted Turner, the triple seven, and then everybody else is number three. Yeah. Yeah. Is Ted is far and away, far and away. He, I don't know what the stats are at right now, but around 50,000 head of bison on 13 ranches to over 2 million acres. That's um, like 2.2, I think. I think it's, I think you're right. 2.2. It's yeah, it's incredible. And and the organization that they've built around bison is yeah, it's really second to none. Do you think Ted Turner like kind of almost single handedly recreated the market for bison? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, he definitely definitely has created a huge awareness around the animal and um as far as you know, as far as what their organization has done, uh sort of experimenting with different production methods and sort of pushing the envelope uh, for what's possible and, and being an example for other ranches. I think that, I mean, they, they've had a huge impact on the industry, whether single-handedly, I don't, I'm, I'm not too sure. There's, there's been a lot of really important people that have moved this industry forward and continue to do so, but they, they still are the, you know, one of the premier organizations, no doubt. I mean, that's fair. It may be saying single-handedly is a little bit strong, but yeah, you know, I was just sitting I'm, here, just, just listening to you talk for the last, you know, 45 minutes, you know, we got down to, you know, kind of a severe bottleneck 50 years ago. And it wasn't very long after that, that Ted Turner started buying ranches hmm. and, and putting bison on them. And that's been, gosh, I remember that. You know, he's been saying that since the beginning, like, I'm going to restore all this land and I'm going to do it with bison. Mm -hmm. And then he's got a line of steakhouses open up. And, you know, like I said, I never went there, but people that did said it was expensive and it wasn't great. Well, they, they probably got better like everybody does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe the, Ted might be the, the second most influential person in the bison world behind Moritz Espy. Let's just say that. It, Moritz has a big personality. <laughs> Um, but you know, okay, so that brings up a good, an interesting little case study around, there's this narrative out there in the public that bison are, you know, you put them out on land and it just becomes this utopia, this oasis, automatically they regenerate the land. And there's sort of a famous case study when Ted Turner bought the Flying D Ranch near Bozeman, Montana, back in the late 80s, they, they had this vision of taking this 113,000 acre ranch and tearing out all the, the interior fencing and just letting them do their thing, right? And, you know, let them run wild. And 
so to speak, this, you know, this vision that I think a lot of people have and what they found, just like any other species, they, they had their favorite areas. They, you know, they went to the riparian areas and overutilized those and bison generally are, are naturally better at utilizing a riparian area, a water source, and then leaving because they still have that instinct when they drink, you know, there's predators there and they want to drink and they want to get out. And so they do tend to utilize steeper slopes and areas further away from water than cattle do. But what they found on the Flying D was, you know, it didn't quite work that way. It, they needed to have some sort of a management to actually achieve the, the goals that they had for the land, right? So that over time now they've moved to more of a, you know, sort sort of an adaptive grazing model. Yeah, I I never talked to anybody specifically from the Flying D, uh, but I have spoken to several people, several other, let's just say managers or you know folks that are kind of higher up in the Turner organization, and it seems like they've tried everything from well, we'll just tear out all the fences and let them do the bison thing. To now that they're almost every ranch that I know of in the Turner system is getting cross fenced and they're doing frequent moves and allowing long rest periods. And, right. you know, that goes and that's on the whole spectrum, right? I mean, that's from that's from probably ranches that are doing, you know, 15 to 30 day move schedules to ranches that are doing daily moves at high stock densities behind polywire one strand like. People say it's impossible to run bison behind a single strand polywire. They've done it on McGinley. Totally. And that's, that's exciting. Uh, I, I hope to visit there this next year to see what they've been doing because it sounds pretty incredible. And, you know, and that's as I, as my journey sort of moved, moved along, I, I got uh, a position on this bison ranch, like fairly decent size. It was about 12,000 acres and a few hundred head. And it was sort of, uh, let's just say it was sort of getting dilapidated and the infrastructure being neglected and some of those things. And previous to me getting back into ranching, I was a carpenter and a welder. And so I looked around and said, well, geez, here's my chance, you know, here's my chance to come in and start building stuff and get experience with the animals and, and all those things. And so I started working on this ranch to, uh, really cut my teeth and, uh, you know, able to source animals for my meat business and, and build up the the foundation you know to to being a good bison manager and uh and range manager and along that that journey i suppose in maybe 2015 2016 i i came ac across holistic management for the first time and it was like oh, okay all right here here's something that here's something that makes sense to me and this is like here are here's a group of people that are really pushing the envelope and trying to figure out how we can do this and regenerate land, be profitable. So I kind of went down that rabbit hole for a while and still am quite frankly, I, I think there's a ton of value in the holistic management framework and the people that are doing it across the spectrum have seen some incredible results. You probably being one of those people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was just sitting here thinking that, you know, the holistic management framework, it applies, you can apply it to everything. Yeah. And where Alan got it, where he developed it from was military planning. Like he would take right. military planning processes and techniques and adapt them to agriculture and, and biology. And, you know, it, I'll be honest, like 
it, it almost kind of comes second nature to me because I grew up being exposed to holistic management and ranching for profit because my dad started, you know, picking up that stuff up in the mid to late 80s. So I grew up with it. And when I went to the Navy and I got introduced to like how to plan out maintenance, how to plan out workflows, I'm like, oh, this seems pretty simple because I'd already kind of had some grounding in it. And then to bring it full circle about the same time period that, that you're talking about 2015, 2016 is when I got real interested again in holistic management. Now, before that I'd gone in and I'd done some of the courses, uh, like the grazing course, the management course, I didn't do the economics, but that was all based on the second edition. And it, it didn't really resonate as, as well with me as what the content that they were teaching and talking about in the ranching for profit community. Hmm. Then I think it was um, no-till on the plains in 2016 in Wichita, Kansas. Alan Savory came to speak and he gave the keynote. So like, okay, so Wichita is a two-hour drive. The guy's going to talk for an hour and a half and it's a two-hour drive home. You bet your butt I went. Mm. And that was, like I said, that was 2016 and I was in the middle of a tree clearing project. I was trying to get finished up. And then I had a wildfire. So it was kind of like, I had a lot of things kind of come together, like right there at the beginning of 2016. Um, but what I'm getting at is, you know, having had time to think and like the holistic, holistic management planning process, you can apply that to everything, to anything and everything. And it should be applied to anything and everything. That's right. I mean, I just finished rewriting my holistic context every, you know, few months I get a new notebook and journal. I write it, I write it out every single time at the front and change it a little bit if, you know, things in my life have changed, but I can't even tell you how much that has helped inform my decision-making in my life. And I'm curious, Sid, your, did your time in the military when those planning processes that they were using, was there overlap with that planning process that Alan brought into holistic management? Like he calls it the aid memoir. Um, I, I really can't speak to that because when I was growing up, I don't think I ever really got kind of indoctrinated in the, in the, in the actual holistic management planning process. I just got to see snippets of it from my dad and hear snippets of it and, and, and see how that worked. Right. So I didn't really, and I guess maybe that was just, that was the way things were done. Right. Like just because that's, you know, that's how dad did it. That's what I learned. And that's what I knew when I went out in the world. So it, it was familiar. Um, but a, a, as far as parallels, I really, I really can't say that there were any, I would just say that growing up with it gave me a good foundation to understand it when it was presented to me in the Navy, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So you told me why bison. Um, I think it's just, it's an emotional, like it's an emotional thing for you or is it because you think that bison are like a thousand times better than cows at, at rebuilding soil? No. Okay. So the, yeah. So to carry on with say that, the, the Ted Turner example of, 
you know, the, the narrative about them being this like, you know, ultimate land regenerator. Uh, the, the deeper I got down into that journey, you know, once I got into holistic management, regenerative stuff, okay, how can we manage these, these animals to improve the land, improve soil? And, and as I became more exposed to different people doing regenerative bag, mostly with cattle, it became clear that the people that are pushing the envelope are the people, you know, doing some pretty ultra high stock density grazing with long recovery periods. And, um, so I want, you know, of course I wanted to try some of that with bison and, and around 2018, my wife and I, we moved to Texas for a few years to go manage Rome ranch in Texas, where we, uh, were able to try some of these things and sort of push the envelope in terms of, uh, sort of the, the management intensity, sort of the stock density, uh, playing around anything and everything you can think of with electric fencing down to the single strand and, and some of that stuff. And, you know, what, you know, what we experienced is that, yeah, you can do it. And I think that there's like, there's so much possibility and what you talked about Turner's McGinley ranch. Um, there's a lot of other examples out there like the Durham ranch is doing some pretty cool things. Uh, some guys here in Canada running bison behind single hot wire, but it is more challenging because they are a wild animal and they have, uh, a larger flight zone. Right. And so you can sort of get them accustomed to tighter spaces and some of those things. And what we found to be, what I found to be the most successful approach is a strip grazing approach where you know, you're starting off with a, a fairly small paddock, but keeping them comfortable and then ex just exposing a small strip, whatever interval you're going to, you're going to do that on. But that way, every, every single move, the pressure releases, right? It's like the, the paddock just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and they, and they flock to that fresh growth and get that stock density on that fresh break, but not pushing them too hard. Like, you know, not moving them from half acre paddock to half acre paddock to half acre paddock until you have a total blowout rack. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that, so that's kind of, you know, that's sort of where the frontier of regenerative bison management sits right now. Like people are, are just pushing literally the, the boundaries of what they can do as far as minimal, minimal fencing, because that still is the barrier. And I don't think really we should be, uh, trying to mimic what people out there are doing with cattle from like a stock density number standpoint. Right. I think it's just, it's gotta be a different approach. I agree. I also, it's probably a good point to say this. When people talk about that, Oh, the bison would move around at like 2 million pounds, an acre of stock density. Oh, they're, they're you know, and then there's, we've heard the stories, right. Of, you know, a bison herd horizon to horizon taking two days to pass. Yeah. I'm not sure that that's, that that's what the bison should have been doing. That's just what we observed them doing in a very, very narrow slice of history. At the end of a long period where we'd really changed their ecosystem and we changed the makeup of their ecosystem, slaughtering the beavers and, and the diseases that ripped through all the Native Americans, you know, smallpox, yellow fever, and malaria. That's the third one. When all the Native Americans used bison, they all hunted bison, they all used bison. 
So if 90% of the Native Americans die between, say, 1500 and 1650, what does that do to the bison population? I mean, you release all that hunting, you release all that negative downward pressure on the bison population, the, the Native Americans from Native American management, Native American harvest. And you remove that pressure almost immediately, all at once. Bison numbers explode. I mean, that's pretty logical to me, right? Yeah. So what we observed at there at the end of the, like in the 1860s and 1870s of bison numbers, saying that that's, that was the historical carrying capacity of the plains. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm really yeah. not sure. I have, I, I have some significant doubts and I have, I have doubts that 2 million pounds per acre of animal impact is ever going to be long-term sustainable for the, for right. any ecosystem. I could be wrong. I'd like to be wrong. I'm just saying that, that people blindly saying, well, I'm doing bison biomimicry. What are we mimicking? Like, do, do we know what we're really trying to mimic or are we basing everything on an extremely narrow slice of observation? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I don't think we really know what we're mimicking, but what what's pretty clear now is that some sort of some sort of high intensity disturbance followed by a long and long as contextual, of course, recovery period in these more semi-arid to arid environments that we know that some version of that is how these systems operated and you know, I think we're still really uh, exploring what the what's optimal because, you know, I guess I could just pick back up on my story. You know, in 2017, I went to a a workshop put on here in southern Alberta, and I walk in the room, and this woman, this Kiwi woman, is standing up at the top of at the front of the room, you know, going off about fungi and bacteria to a room of cowboys and i was just like what in the world who is this is this did i take a wrong turn or did she end <laughs> up in new zealand but um i was just blown away by nicole masters standing up there talking about soil biology in a way that i had never really I, it never sunk in that soil biology is i mean as important as it is and it actually is the driver for the whole system i up to that point thought, oh yeah, it's, you know, it's about the grass. It's about, you know, you manage the grass, right? We're grass farmers, blah, blah, blah. And that moment for me really kind of punched me in the gut because I realized that I knew nothing about actually how these systems worked. And, you know, finally I realized that they actually are alive, you know, beyond just like a few little bugs crawling around in the soil, but actually fungi and bacteria dynamics and you know the rest of the soil food web is actually needs to be a primary focus for us to be able to manage and so that from there that that june of 2017 completely changed my life again because i realized well i gotta figure that i gotta try to figure this out i gotta try to learn what you know what this means really what is soil biology and the management of fungi in particular mean for the success of our future agricultural operations. And, and so I've kind of been down a, 
rabbit hole of the you know journey since that time and studying with Nicole um, through her create program and then since becoming a coach on her team and coaching others to to really get out there and and see how we can spread the word of regenerative agriculture and agroecology and back to just the arid lands conversation we're really starting to see that you know this we you know we need to get the fungi back in balance because we've become so bacterially dominated across hundreds of millions of acres of, of for definitely cropland and then rangeland because of overgrazing and so then how do we shift that balance you know to more fungal even that out which is going to boost water holding capacity carbon just really production in general and um, i think that we are just sort of seeing the the edge of what's possible there and it seems like the drier the environment the longer the recovery needs to be out to multiple years type of thing so back to what are we trying to mimic we don't quite know we don't know you know say in your ranch behind you the exact intervals that over say 20,000 years that the disturbance and rest regime how that actually played out and what that means for our soil biology okay okay grazing and rest intervals when we're talking about a historical context like before we put barbed wire up before we showed up with horses what you know what did the what would appropriate grazing and appropriate rest be and I've got to go back, you know, the conversation that we just had about bison numbers. And so throughout the 17 and 1800s, we've got cattle that were being, we've, cattle numbers were increasing and bison numbers were decreasing. Okay. That's, I don't have any really evidence to support that, but that's, I mean, that's what had to have happened. I mean, Spanish brought cattle over in the 1500s, a lot of those eventually evolved to the Creole breeds, the you know, Florida crackers, Louisiana swamp cattle, the uh, piney woods, and of course the Coriones that I like and the offshoot of that was the Longhorns, which Longhorn genetic bottleneck, that's another fun one. They were even worse than bison. They were like several hundred, like less, several thousands of animals maybe in four herds. Mm. Yeah, there, there were some really weird bottle. You can almost tell uh, if somebody's like, if, if a longhorn operation got their original genetics from one of those four, one of those four remnant herds, you can almost tell which ones of those four it was by the colors and by the horn shape size. At least I thought I could, maybe I was, maybe I was completely wrong about that. Um, forgot what I was saying. Oh, so it, it's a narrow slice. And like, you know, like I said, that, that, the bison numbers were likely on a strong upward trend because of the removal of the pop, the removal of the downward population pressure that the Native Americans put on them. So the bison population, I believe, was on an increasing trend until until 1872, 1873, when you know we we killed them all to get rid of the Comanche food source. So when we're looking like the 17 to 1800s there was probably a lot less grazing pressure, I would think. Now, you know, going, going back to that, you know, I said, you know, the, the 2 million pounds a day and then 180-day rests that, you know, gets anecdotally thrown around about bison grazing. 
eh, I don't buy it. Long rest periods that are maybe the majority of a growing season and a very short graze period. And your graze period, I can, this is why I have trouble with like prescriptions and systems and saying that, you know, climate change, um, stocking rate and carrying capacity. Okay. Before we came up with processing plants and barbed wire and poly wire, who set the carrying capacity and stocking rate of the range? It wasn't us. I mean, nature did that. When the cattle would eat everything that was there, there wasn't a fence that stopped them from going to look for fresh grass. Likewise with the bison. So these concepts of, of a graze period that only really, you know, gets invented, it only really comes into the vocabulary when we put a fence around them because then they're locked in that area for a time of grazing. And then we as managers need to remove them to give that, to give those plants adequate time to rest and recover. So what's, what's your adequate graze period? as short as possible to allow for as long a rest and recovery as possible on the plants. Well, what's the magic formula, Brian? I don't know. It depends on where you're at. It depends on how much rain you get. Depends on what your temperature is like. For me, generally, a five-day graze is okay. Sometimes a three-day graze is almost too fat, is almost too long. Sometimes I need 25 days of rest. And sometimes I need 90 days of rest. Just depends on what the weather's doing. So, Brian, I think this leads us directly into total grazing. What is your opinion on total grazing? My opinion is brand names for grazing systems um, are a marketing gimmick. And I've heard total grazing explained like three different ways. And mm -hmm. when I hear total grazing, that means I'm trying to utilize as much of the forage in that paddock as absolutely possible. I mean, if it's got nutritive value in it, I want the cattle to eat it. And what they, and when I leave that paddock, I don't want to be anything there. I, I want to move out of a paddock when I have one blade of grass left. Like th that would be the goal. Like that would be the maximum efficiency is to move out of a paddock when you have one bite or one blade of grass left. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the next. But what does that look like? That's the fun part. That's the fun part. My friend Ed, who was a, he's a feedlot guy, uh, cow trader. He used to say that what I was trying to do with daily moves with cows behind polywire is I was trying to be the best bunk rider on the feedlot and leave one, one kernel of corn in the feed bunk. He said that, well, when he was running a feedlot, he said, that's how he wanted his, that's how, what he wanted the feed truck drivers to do is like, we want to deliver the exact amount of feed plus one kernel of corn that those cattle are going to need to eat for that period. Okay, I get that. So it's all the grass that they need for that whole day plus one bite. That's how big your paddock needs to be. So then what do you think about, so this idea, okay, you're, it really, you know, shifts away from the conventional notion of take half, leave half, 
all that stuff. And you're pushing the limit of utilization up to 90 plus percent. And then and to tying it back to this conversation about what would have been with the bison and, you know, whatever the numbers were, they were, there were big herds out there and they were moving around across the landscape. And you got to imagine things were demolished by the time a big herd of even, you know, a, a herd of 10,000 would have been a small herd. Right. Back, you know, and so they move through an area over the course of a few hours, or if it's the big herds, you know, a couple of days and completely, I mean, you can imagine what that ground would look like as they move through. You and can then imagine like the first third of them, they got something pretty decent to eat. Yeah. <laughs> the next third of them were kind of like, they were kind of getting the Midlands. And if yeah, you were yeah. in the back, you're probably licking mud. Well, man, that would have been rough. And you're getting picked off by wolves too. Well, it's, it's an incentive to try to get to the front of the herd so you get something a little bit better. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's just, it's hard. It's hard based on our limited scope and limited observations to really, really have any good, meaningful understandings of, you know, how things should be. Yeah, no, it's so true. And I, I'm, I'm sort of working on this writing project around regenerative bison management right now and trying to find different historical accounts that, that are actually able to say how long the intervals were, essentially how long the rest periods were after grazing. And it doesn't appear like there's much out there. And so if anybody is listening to this that knows of any historical accounts, please let me know. I mean, I, I, I think it all helps to try to try to piece this together to see because i just feel like especially in these drier environments you know it could have been like on average it could have been years before grazing pressure you know fire would have been more prevalent on the landscape as well but you know we could be talking three four five years in some of these dry areas on the plains yeah and you know speaking of fires you know i'm a fire guy but we're not going to do that today um i would I would venture to guess that back in antiquity, back in the ancient times, and, and let's just say for clarity, I'm talking about the time period from say 1500 to 1800 for the Great Plains, which was like, there just wasn't anybody here, 1500, 1800. The Indians were all dying out. It was full of the Indians that weren't dying, didn't like anybody. And it was full of bison and crappy weather. Golden California, better weather on the West Coast. Let's just keep going and get there. Nobody really stopped here. Um, and I forgot what I was going to say. Forgot where I was going with that completely. Well, you bring up that time frame too, and another pressure is that that's the time when the horse was introduced to the Great Plains. So that also shifted bison hunting dynamics, and they were able to. Uh, they were able to take out more animals at one time because they had the horse, you know, and that, that would have been sort of that basically on the Northern plains, at least 200 years, of course, where you guys were, it would, would have been, I think it in around, uh, 1612 or something is when the horses broke loose from Spanish towns in New Mexico. Yeah. It was like 1650, 1670s that, that the horses kind of spread up through the mountains and uh i'm probably going to say this wrong the comanche the comanche were one of the first mountain tribes that that got a hold of a horse and i think they were 
like a branch off the Ute Shoshone. Probably that's probably wrong, but they got the horse and they figured it out and they got the hell out of the mountains and they took over the plains because they understood horses better than anybody. Hmm. So back, Brian, to your ranch, I've got a question. Like, so you've been there your whole life and you've been trying all sorts of, you know, different approaches to grazing. Where do you see your future on your ranch, given what you've, you've experienced over the last few years? Well, I, I still need to shrink paddock size. Like average paddock size is too big. Um, I'd like to get a lot closer to about a 40 acre or so paddock size. Um, and that's going to give me a lot of flexibility, you know, of course, you know, stocking rate and stocking rate, grace period, recovery period, um, much smaller than that. I start running a lot of terrain problems, a lot of water issues, um, bigger than that efficiency falls off a lot. You know, I've just, just, it's being observant about how they use a pasture, how much of a pasture they use before they go back to the stuff that they use the first day in the pasture. And, you know, those are kind of things that, okay, well, you should go herd them and push them off that pass. Or if they've spent three days over there camped out on the west end of an 80 acre paddock, just go fence that off. A lot of times I'll just move them Mm. instead of fencing something off. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's a little bit lazy, but you know, Hey, time is money and labor is expensive. Um, as far as rest periods, like I said, like there have been years where, where the grass is ready to come back in 25 days. And there are years where it was 70 to 80 to 90 days. And I'm, I'm starting to figure it out. It's just, it's rain. It's amount of rain plus hours of sunshine. Like we get two weeks of cloudy days. We can have all the moisture in the world. Two weeks of cloudy days. We ain't going to grow shit. As soon as that sun pops out, we almost get compensatory growth on the grass and it just, it just shoots up. And I saw that, we saw that happen in 2023. I mean, it basically didn't rain here for nine months. It didn't start raining until the end of May, like six weeks late. The grass was six weeks late greening up at the beginning of June. And by the first of July, it was 30 days ahead. Hmm. Interesting. Most like the last, the last few days of May, the last 10 days of May and all of June, it just, it's just, it is like rainy and cloudy all the time. And there toward the end of June, the rain kind of turned off. We got some 80, 90 degree days and the grass just, I, I didn't even see it. Like it wasn't there one day and the next day it was seven feet tall. And what if, so, and it, it, hopefully I'll get a bunch more data this year. I mean, I can't control the weather. Even if I could mail order the weather, the neighbor would still tell me it was wrong and complain about it. Um, you know, it's just waiting. It's, you know, kind of have it in mind, like, okay, this is how we're going to manage this year. Or this is, this is the philosophy we're going to do this year. This is how we're going to tweak it. And this is the records that we're going to keep. These are the data that we're going to pay attention to, to see if that management change makes a meaningful difference either in short term or long term, and if it's a positive thing that we want to continue doing. And by that, I mean like balancing the grace period and the rest period and the stocking rate. And I guess, you know, I was kind of going back. I, I guess this is kind of where I was trying to go. 
is nature doesn't, nature can't set a stocking rate. I mean, she's not going to adjust her stocking rate to the carrying capacity of the land. Well, I guess she does. When times are dry, you know, when it's dry, there's not a whole lot of grass, things are hard. What happens? The old sick ones die, right? Because they can't get enough. The ones that don't have any teeth anymore, they die off. Well, that's a cull to take, that's a cull to reduce the herd size back closer to the carrying capacity of the land. And that's nature's mechanism to do it. You know, we just sometimes, let's say sometimes, we're, we have mechanisms where we can be proactive managers and manage that stocking match, be able to match that stocking rate to carrying capacity if we're paying attention to what's coming down the line and our forage budget. So that seems to be what you've been setting yourself up for in terms of, I mean, custom cattle and just being more adaptive with the, with the enterprises that you're bringing on. And what do you, what do you think that looks like for you? Do you think custom is still the way to go for you or? You know, and that's obviously that's going to be a decision that everybody's going to have to, to make on their own for their own specific context. And I think the days, the days of being able to buy a ranch and make it pay and be able to play cowboy are drawing to an end. Yes. Um, you know, for years we've seen, we've seen the most profitable ranches, you know, and this is, this is all coming back through the ranching for profit executive link network. Profitable, successful ranches are generally doing a lot of custom grazing and often on leased land. Now, even if the leased land, even if the land you're leasing, you're leasing from yourself, keeping that land business and the livestock business separate is what, is what really kind of keeps an operation, is what separates su successful operations from the ones that aren't, right? Now, there's, there's more to it than that. But, you know, through the years, we see that the operations that are doing custom grazing on leased land are successful. They're successful financially, economically, socially successful, and it's a good quality of life for the owners. Okay, I dig it. Um, and and I'm, I don't want to discourage anybody from trying to do it. It's just, that's not a recipe to get rich. Like, it, it, Nobody buys a ranch and gets cows to get rich. That's, it's just, it's generally just a giant money vacuum for the most part. And hopefully if you put money into it for 20 years, you can get something back out. If it's your plan to build a business to sell, I'm not building a business to sell. I'm building a business to provide me with a lifestyle. So maybe that's a little bit different of a goal and Shit, I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling now and mostly I'm rambling because I really have to pee. So can we take a few minutes? Sure, right, I'll be right back. Yeah, we're back. I figured you probably had to, uh, I was kind of watching that stove back there behind you. I was watching the, over the last hour and 15, 20 minutes, I was just watching the flames get shorter and shorter and shorter. Were you starting to get a little cold? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's not too cold outside, but it's, uh, got to have a good cozy fire, man. I, I got a new stove. Uh, oh gosh, it's probably 
10 or 12 years ago. So the when I moved into this house, I had a wood burning stove in it. It needed all new seals. It needed all new bricks. So I started, I started looking to see what it would cost to replace the brick in this stove. And, you know, I, I, the style that you have, that's what I have now. What I had before, it was kind of rounded. It was, it was a square, but it was kind of like bulged out and rounded. So it needed these special contoured freaking special fire bricks. It was going to be like a thousand dollars for a set of bricks for the stove. I'm like I could buy another stove for a thousand bucks. You get that right. So yeah, I ended up, uh, so I went stove shopping and, uh, the size of stove I bought, let's just put it this way. If I lived where you live in this house, the stove would be big enough. <laughs> For Southern Kansas, um, it's 42 degrees today. There's no way I'd think about lighting a fire. It's like if I put twigs in it, it'd run you out of the dang house. <laughs> yes, yes. Nice cozy fire when it gets down to, when it gets down under freezing, we light the fire and uh, we stay pretty cozy here. So, all right. What were we talking about? I don't even remember. Do you? No, but I mean, it, you know, it just has me thinking this conversation about fire and stoves. Um, I had mentioned to you, you know, so I'm just thinking, okay, what's, you know, we're taking carbon, we're putting it in the, the stove and we're using that stored sunlight energy to heat ourselves essentially. Right. And then the byproduct that's leaving the chimney is smoke you know, this carbon smoke that's, you know, heading up into the atmosphere. And one of the reasons I reached out to you is this interesting technology that I've come across in the last couple of years and have been sort of studying around taking the emissions from tractors, diesel engines, really anything and using that carbon sort of waste product basically as a soil amendment. Okay. I, I think that's interesting. Um, and it's, it, it's interesting from several different ways, but there's also, I think maybe a few technology hurdles that have to come across. So when we think about direct air capture of carbon. Now I, I get, you're talking about like putting something on, on the exhaust pipe of a tractor and that's, I'll try to get back there. Um, so the, the example that kind of comes to mind is there's a power plant in Iceland and right next door to it, they said, we're going to build this direct air carbon capture plant because we have excess energy here and we're going to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere so we can inject it into rocks 5,000 feet down. Great. They're, they're catching that carbon and it was it's an old article and I'm barely remembering it, but I believe it was, it was like two years ago and they were saying, this is the lowest cost we found where we're, it's only $55 a ton for us to just capture and sequester this carbon. That's all it costs. It's only $55 a ton. Okay. You're using some sort of atmospheric pump to pull the air in. You're using something to pull the carbon out and then you're putting the oxygen and nitrogen back and keeping that carbon. And then somehow you're going to take that carbon and you're going to put it in the soil or in rocks. Okay. 
So there's at least three, if not four major steps in machinery that have to happen in there. All machinery that's got to be, what was that? They all need energy sources. Right. And not just energy sources to operate them. They need a manufacturing and supply chain that also consumes energy all the way back to the truck that's hauling the raw ore out of the pit up to the processing plant. Okay. So I question like if we're going to sequester, if this plant's going to sequester a thousand tons a year, okay, let's use that number. It's going to sequester a thousand tons a year. Did we burn more fuel to build it and maintain it? Are we actually saving anything by adding all this extra machinery and extra processing and, and extra things? Like, and this is part of the problem I have with, with fucking electric cars, man. Like, do they make sense? Are they more efficient? Yes, they do. But what we really need to make some strides is in the extraction and production and making right. that more efficient. I mean, you don't run an 800 ton mining shovel on freaking batteries. You don't run a cat nine, six, nine, uh, seven ninety seven F truck. That'll haul 400 tons. You don't run those on batteries. I'm sorry. You just don't. We're, we're two technology leaps away from being able to have that kind of thing operate on batteries. And the technology leap we need is energy density storage in the batteries. Okay. That got off topic. Back to carbon capture. We know that through, you know, good holistic adaptive management, good grazing practices, not abusing our soils, we can store carbon in our soils. And what blows my mind is like that I can change, I, you can almost go by a ranch, change the management practices, put some cross fencing on it, put some water on it to double the stocking rate from what the previous owner had, then go get a carbon contract and sell the carbon off that ranch and not really have to worry about cash flowing. Like it, there's going to be some scenarios that we're going to hear about in the next couple of years where people have gone and bought degraded property and rehabilitated it and cash flowed it using the carbon payments. It's going yeah, to I mean, I, I think so too. And I, you know, what, what that ends up looking like and in the long run remains to be seen, but, you know, it goes back to, well, maybe that is a piece of the puzzle of being able to go buy a ranch and cash flow it with cows, but you're just going to be a different kind of a cowboy to pull that off. But the, uh, the carbon back to the carbon capture actual plants, like I have no idea how they actually work and I'm sure the accounting is messy and it, to me, it just makes, it doesn't make any sense at all. And it, it reminds me, was it, did you have, uh, Paul Brown on? Yes. Yeah, where... yeah. We, we talked about that summit carbon solutions pipeline that they were trying to put through his back door, backyard. Mm -hmm. Range, right basically yeah you know it just it totally makes no sense and um and so i don't know if you've seen there's elon musk's x prize for carbon carbon removal out there right now there it's this big competition i i think i know some people that have tried to submit grazing projects in for elon's carbon x prize 
Okay. And I don't think, I don't think they were seriously considered, you know, and which, which is crazy because I've, so I've looked into it and some, a bunch of the projects are, you know, it's, it's kind of a joke. Like one of them was, you know, we're going to grow a bunch of trees in a forest in North Carolina. Then we're going to dig a big pit, log the trees and bury them in the ground. And we're sequestering carbon that way. The reason I was researching it is because back to this technology that um, sort of back up a second, I suppose. Here in southwest Alberta, there's a farmer local to me named Gary Lewis. And over the last 20 years, basically, he wanted to figure out a way to get rid of fertilizer on his own farm because it it wasn't working you know, profitability wise, he was ruining his soil. He was conscious, conscious that his soil health was going downhill and the hay that he was exporting and the crops that he was exporting to some unique markets were coming back and saying, basically his, his crops were garbage and they weren't accepting it and paying him his premium. So he started experimenting with taking the exhaust from his irrigation pump, pumping it out of the river and just pumping it directly into the water. And he started to see results with this. And he's like, Oh, wow. Okay. Looks like we might be onto something here. So then over the next, um, you know, I'd say that was about 20 years ago. They've, they've gone through a series of different generations where they've started to strap these tanks to uh, the front of a tractor and take the exhaust from the tractor and cool it down into this sort of carbon brew and it mixes with water. And then they're on their sixth generation of what's called the bioactive emissions farming system. And so now they're at the point where they're pretty advanced. Back in the early days, they, they had issues with actually cooling the exhaust because it's so hot. So they were running pipes everywhere and trying to cool it with uh, air-to-air heat exchangers and things like that and having all sorts of problems. Once they moved to a water-cooled system where basically it's running through a mist, cooling the exhaust, and there's two side tanks that mix microbial inoculants into this tank, creating this brew of carbon microbial soup. And then from there, the engine, the force of the engine, you can imagine there's a lot of a lot of force running through those pipes. It takes it back and and whatever piece of machinery you're using, uh, you know, most common thing is a seed drill. It runs it back down into the onto the tines of the seed drill and basically you're vaping uh carbon microbial uh amendment down into the soil and you know using something that otherwise would be a pollutant and a waste product and using it as a soil amendment and when i first heard this somebody told me about it and i was like okay this is crazy you know there's got to be something up with this i mean it's got to be a bad for your soil does it really work and so this guy's farm is 30 minutes from my place. So I started spending time there about three years ago and really digging into what is going on here. Because, you know, in my learning about soil, there's, you know, we talk about carbon amendments. We hear about biochar. We hear about humates, um, you know, and some of these other sort of carbon-based amendments. And they're all, you know, they're all mined. Either biochar is made by burning wood and and basically you know, pyrolysis creating this, you know, stable form of carbon. Humates are ancient soft brown coals that are former uh, plant life millions of years ago buried. And we have to go again, we have to go mine those 
take them and climb to our land. When I started to dig into this a bit more, it's like, okay, well, diesel fuel is stored sunlight. It's, you know, ancient hydrocarbons, similar process to how those humates would have been formed. And what these guys are claiming with the bioactive system is that when that diesel fuel goes through the combustion process, you can imagine the force that that cylinder is putting onto that fuel and exploding it into, you know, it's, it's basically smallest constituent possible. And what they're calling is carbon nanotubes. And so if you look up carbon nanotubes, it's a thing. Yeah. And essentially, you know, it's the, the tiniest form of carbon that you can possibly imagine, which is then readily available for microbes and it's available to the plant uh, in a more easily, you know, easily accessible form. And what it's doing is basically feeding biology. So this carbon is a direct source to feed biology in the soil. And so what we're seeing with bioactive is these conventional farms are strapping these kits onto their equipment and completely eliminating fertilizer, cold turkey in the first year and seeing either no reduction in yield. Sometimes they're seeing increases in yield and soil organic matter is increasing on average half a percent per year. And so you can imagine what impact that has on the bottom line of a farm that, you know, if there's if a farm of any sort of a scale, their fertilizer bill is in the neighborhood half a million, over a million in the last few years per year. And one of these systems at a, say, a hundred grand pop, a one-time purchase, you know, they're, <laughs> they're making money big time in the first year, not to mention you're improving your soil. So I, I had my um, reservations at the start, but the more time I spent at Gary's farm and digging in his soil, and his soil is tracked from 20 years ago around four or 5% organic matter. He's up at around 11% organic matter, growing bumper crops every year, hasn't had fertilizer for 22 years. And this is something we're seeing on all these farms across the, you know, the Canadian prairies, it's into the US now, just starting to catch on. And so it's one of the things that I am most excited about from an energy standpoint, soil standpoint, food security. It really, this thing addresses so many issues that we talk about. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And I, I think I've maybe seen some pictures of, of what you're talking about, you know, having two saddle tanks on a tractor and a tank up front, big hose from the exhaust going up to the front. And maybe I didn't really understand it, but, you know, listening to you talk, okay, makes sense. Um, the concern that I have would be, some of the, I don't know, more exotic pollutants that are in, that would be in the exhaust. You know, like heavy metals, things like that. Heavy metals and, and just, you know, heavy metal toxicity. Cause there is some of that in, in the oil that doesn't come out in the refining process. Um, but on the whole, I, I would think that if you have a healthy bioactive system in a healthy underground uh, animal community, you know, good bugs, good nematodes, good fungi, good bacteria, that it's going to be able to utilize the carbon and the other elements that are going to be in there and the stuff that is toxic 
those organisms are going to be able to sequester it and ignore it. Yeah. And that was the very first concern I had as soon as I heard it, it was the same thing. And, and quickly I was presented with the research they did back in 2010 with the Dr. Jill Clapperton. She's a, like a microbial scientist. I've heard of her. She's in the regenerative space and stuff now, but back in 2010, they did a study with Montana State University to look at that and they didn't find anything that was, you know, particularly harmful. And so I was like, okay, yeah, okay. I'm still, I still have these same concerns that you have. And we do know that, you know, especially around this conversation with glyphosate that, you know, the healthier and more biologically active our soils are, the more they're able to process some of these other toxins like glyphosate being a perfect example and you know and and just so you got to think of it holistically too you know what does that reduce in terms of what's being put on the land with fertilizer what are the negative impacts that we're doing to our soils with fertilizer and they're also you know putting these on sprayers and the amount their applications of say roundup or other chemicals go way down I believe it's around like 25% of what they normally put put down on the ground because of that. I believe it's that nanocarbon. And we see this with humates. You know, you, people are saying, like Nicole saying, you know, you put humates in with your chemical or fulvic acid and you're able to reduce your rate of that herbicide down by a substantial amount, maybe like 80%. So a similar effect is happening with bioactive with those nanocarbons, you, you know, because that, you know, that compounds attaching to that carbon, it's able to penetrate the leaf easier and more, or more effectively, you're reducing the amount of harmful chemicals you're putting on your land. So it's like, I mean, the, you got to look at all sides of it, but you know, from what we're seeing with it, it's like, wow, okay. Not only are you already basic, everybody who's farming or running equipment, they're already buying their fertilizer. Uh, they're just burning it up and sending it into the air instead. That's an interesting way to look at it. And yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it. I, I was just sitting here thinking there's a lot of profit in treatment. Excuse me. There's a lot of profit in treatment and there's not much profit in a cure. And this is a cure. This is a cure against the people that are trying to sell you a treatment for your soil. And unfortunately, the world we live in, I mean, capitalism, I think, is the greatest greatest system ever developed, but it's got some problems. Um, you know, it, it might be the worst thing that we, that's, we've come up with, but nothing else is better than, than capitalism so far. And what I'm getting at is, like, there's no incentive for these big ag corporations that are selling you the cancer treatment, there's no incentive for them to cure the fucking cancer at all. Because if, if we cure the cancer, their treatment business goes to zero and their treatment business is measured in billions of dollars. Yeah. And that's where, that's where the, the wealth of our soil carbon, the wealth of our local rural communities, that's where all that has went over the last 50 years is up to the, to the boardrooms of those corporations. And so how can we start to bring that back and keep that wealth 
in the communities and on the soil and restore that soil. Same reasons why, why carbon contracts like the one that I have aren't more popular. It's because that's not creating another industry for the politicians and their friends to invest in and get rich off of. We're not creating any new industries. Yeah, that, that, that's why it's just not catching on. That's why regenerative agriculture is not catching on is because it doesn't create a new industry. It doesn't create a new sector. It doesn't create a new portion of the economy. All it does is take the base, one of, one of the fundamentals of our economy and take a bunch of inputs out of it. Which, yeah, that's great for the producer. It's going to be better for the consumer that's going to be eating a, a a healthier product, but who it's not good for all the people in the middle that are trying to make money off of you. Yeah. No. And that's why I think things like bioactive that puts the power back into the hands of the primary producer and the local economy is exactly what we need moving forward. The other thing that puts power back in the hands of the producer is being able to market direct to consumer. Being able to control your whole supply chain, production, all the way to consumption. And, you know, even better than that, since we mentioned Ted Turner and his family restaurants, Ted's Montana Steakhouse, he wanted to, I'm not sure what his motivations were. He bought all these ranches, wanted to fix them with bison. I need something to do with the bison. Well, there's no market for bison. Well, let's create it. How do we create a market? Steakhouses. I mean, you got a couple hundred million dollars. What's, you know, what's building a chain of steakhouses in order to sell you so you can sell your meat for the next 20 years. I mean, that's a smart investment. You know, if, if I could see my way through that, you know, that, I, that's a logical place to go for anybody that's got a large land base is, Hey, yeah, I can make a lot of money selling direct consumer. There's even more money if I cook it first. So when we, when we always follow this conversation down, it, it inevitably leads to processing, packing, capacity. Do you see that changing? Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Is anything to be optimistic about of be, being able to pull that off? Oh, you know, we, I, I can't really speak to bison sector at all. Um, more or less. Yeah, I think things are going to, I think things... I think things will get better as far as more options for processing for animals. Um, and in some ways, I think it might also be more difficult. Um, you know, four years ago when COVID shut down the whole world, it was a smart bet. Well, I'm not going to say it was a smart bet, but it was a thought to build my own packing plant. To go ahead and 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 finance two million bucks and build my own packing plant. Somebody else in the community did. I'm and I'm grateful that they spent their money to do it. And I see they might have taken a little too long to get their plant open. Like they didn't get open until about six six or nine months ago. If they would have been open a year before that, it would have been, in, they would have been opening in a much more favorable market. The problem is there's so much collusion and cooperation with the big four processors in this country at the top. And they're so heavily diversified, not just in beef, but in every other protein 
and they're diversified multinationally. Like for me to think that I'm going to compete with that with a hundred cows is ludicrous. Like that, that's just stupid. There's no way I'm going to compete with that in that system. I either have to play by their rules and accept the price that they're going to give me, or I've got to play a different game. And the different game is the direct to consumer. Now, yeah, okay, I got rambling again. What were we talking about? Well, well, so okay, okay, yeah, so, direct to consumer. And, back to, yeah. Well, so what happened this year was market price started going up on fats, which I mean, we all agreed that it needed to go. It needed to go up. It needed to correct. I mean, we had pretty good price discovery in 2019, all the way up to the Tyson fire. Then we had, you know, then we had Tyson fire, COVID back to back. And basically we had like three alternating black swan events. They're like, oh, well, that's a black swan. It'll never happen again. Unless this, this, and this. And then a couple months later, you know, that second black swan happens. They're like, oh, well, we're going to change this, this, and this. It'll never happen again. And well, three months later, we have another black swan event. Like, oh, nobody could ever seen this. Yeah. Bullshit. Those four big packers will use every excuse that they can to raise prices at the grocery store and to drop prices at the feedlot so they can make more money in between. And now here, here's something that people are missing, okay? You hear me talk about externalized, externalized costs all the time. Now, four or five years ago, California started that push, $15 an hour minimum wage. And then it was $25 an hour minimum wage. And that, that hit several sectors of our economy, okay? McDonald's decided they were going to start paying a little bit more like a living wage. What happened to the dollar menu? It disappeared. It's not there anymore, right? Is that the meat packer's fault or is that McDonald's fault? Or is that the labor's fault for wanting $15 an hour or $25 an hour minimum wage to flip fucking burgers at McDonald's? Hard to pin the blame on that one. But what's happening is Dollar menu disappeared, and now instead of $3 to get a sausage biscuit and a coffee, it's $6. Instead of being able to go buy a pickup for you know, a new feed truck for 40, 50 grand, it's 60 or $80,000. Because all the people that serve your food demanded that they wanted to get 15 to $25 an hour. Anytime where you centralize processing and centralize distribution, yeah, it's more efficient from a business point of view to control costs. But when that labor says, no, you better pay us a little bit more. Well, you either have to find new labor force or comp fairly compensate that one for what they're asking for. And then costs have to go up. And you think they're going to pass that cost? You think they're going to take that money out of their executive compensation? Hell no. Hell no. They're going to make the consumer pay for it. Which leads to double-digit inflation, which is what we're having right now. So that's, that's the big corporate game that they're playing, right? When you bring that back to the guy that opened the processing plant in your town, somebody like you who's starting direct to consumer, you know, the thousands of people out there who probably feel the same way and feel that's the direction we need to go. How do we solve the labor piece on the smaller processing end? Because you know, at the end of the day, we do need quality people to be processing our meat and we need those people to be paid a living wage and be contributing members to our community. So how do we solve that one? 
it's hard. It's really hard when package of ground beef at the locker is $6. And I, I understand that that's, that's kind of on the low end. I would, I'm charged, I would be charging more, much more, but they have a product. They have a good ground beef product. They sell for $6. It's not like, it's not, a, they don't say regenerative. It's not, you know, from any specific kind of cattle. It's just, you want good meat? That's going to meet an 80, 20 spec to make a great burger. Here it is, six bucks. You don't get to know anything about it. Okay, fine. Plenty of people will buy that. A lot more people will drive by that meat locker because all they have there is meat and they'll go down to the grocery store and buy the commodity product from the grocery store that's even cheaper because they can also get a lot of other stuff at the grocery store. Now, between from the locker to the grocery store, it's about six blocks. There's no way that we're ever going to get meat processed in that locker in that grocery store. And I'll tell you why. Because that independent grocer belongs to an association that's basically a buying co-op. And if they went to their buying co-op and said, you know, we're not going to be, you, you don't need to ship us any meat. We're not going to order meat from you anymore. Guess what? You ain't ordering anything else either. You buy the meat and you get everything else or you don't get shit. And that, that's the power. That's the power these food service companies have. I mean, okay, yeah, there's, there's what, four or five food service companies, just like there's four packers. That doesn't mean that there's going to be four different food service companies in your area competing for your business. You might be lucky if there's two. Mm -hmm. In most cases, there's one food service company that services restaurants in your area. And yeah, it's the Cisco truck or the Benny Keith truck. And you might get like five different brands of pepperoni and 15 different kinds of bread that you could get from them. But if you want like a 16th kind of bread that they don't carry, good luck. So you're either, it's, it's like you're either part of this giant system and you can't get out of it or you're trying to play a totally different game and nobody knows what the rules are. Yeah. And what I, I want to hear your thoughts on, you know, something I've seen over the last 10 years is like, Oh, you know, do direct to consumer. It's, you know, you're making more money. You're, you're getting a higher percentage of the consumer dollar, all those things. And then everybody and their dog has a direct-to-consumer meat business while trying to also be the producer, which is insanely hard. It, you know, it's a, essentially a, its own separate business. It is its own separate business, and it takes different skill sets and marketing and all those things. So what, what could be a path forward, you know, sort of a middle ground where, you know, not every because not everybody is going to be successful in that direct-to-consumer model. It's so hard. It's insanely difficult. So what could be a, a reasonable path forward? Gosh, I, that one's hard. I, well, I couldn't see it. So I, I chose to not continue to develop my, my direct-to-consumer business. Okay. Because I couldn't see, I couldn't see the way out. All I saw was an increasingly competitive market with increasing costs. And I didn't see anything on the horizon that was going to, I didn't see anything on the horizon that would solve the big challenges I had 
that I foresaw building that business, namely, namely the transportation step. Okay. I got production figured out. Got that. I got the processing figured out. Got that. I got storage figured out. I got that. How do I get it A to B? That's the problem I kept running into is how do I get A to B? How do I get A to B? Well, okay. To listen to yourself talk and shake the hand that feeds you. Focus locally. Okay. Well, in the two years that I was building, that I was building towards this business, it went from like two or three people in the area trying to sell direct to consumer to 20 or 30 trying to sell direct to consumer. I mean, a, a, a lot of people changed their operation real fast in 2020. Real fast. A lot of people had finally had time to sit back and think and see what they're doing. And a lot of them made a big pivot. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying I was slow and late to the game. I mean, I bought a three-year production schedule a little over three years ago. And about a year ago, I decided that this is just not, this is not working and it's time to punch out because I just, I saw where things were going. Um, if there was a, if there was a more efficient way to collect meat from these small packing plants, transfer it to a central cold storage facility, and then be able to direct ship from there to fulfill customers. That's a third party service that I think that's a third party service that would allow a lot more direct to consumer operations a chance to succeed and, and, and prosper. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Well, and is it too communist to say that that is that leaning towards a cooperative type of model? Well, you know, no, a cooperative. I mean, I, I could see a cooperative model being led from the bottom up. And okay, maybe there's some elements of, of communism in there, but if we're all going to be pooling, pooling into this for a common good, you know, okay. The problem with communism is there's no way to kick the people out that aren't pulling their fucking weight. That's the problem with communism. Okay. And there's no way to get rid of the people that are taking more that, that are taking more than they deserve. Okay. So you got those two ends of the spectrum. You got to figure out how to deal with those two ends of the spectrum in any, in, in an operation, which is why, you know, which is why Marxism, communism was less than ideal because it didn't have any of those mechanisms. It just relied on the innate goodness of people to do the right thing, which is total horse shit anyway. Um, so is, is it communism? Uh, I would have a hard time getting there. I mean, local co-op where people are, you know, agree on a set of principles and are going to, you know, cooperate on a set of principles to strive towards a common goal. I would hesitate to call that communism. Yeah. And I said that more in jest, you know, it's like things like, uh, I mean, just basic services, infrastructure. It's like, Hey, we, you know, we work together to have a, agree that a fire department is important, for example, or whatever. Right. But I, I suppose what I'm getting at is that, you know, is that those type of models, do they have merit or do we need more sort of, you know, I'm just thinking of like thousand Hills grass fed beef, you know, like a, like a sort of marketing, marketing aggregator that 
sources from regenerative operations, pays a premium, but then you just sell directly to them and you don't have to touch it. You know, you don't have to worry about how to get it into the hands of the consumer and all, all of that stuff. And I, you know, I don't have the answer to any of these things, but I think it's, it's something that needs solving. Programs like Thousand Hills Lifetime Grazed, I like. Blue Nest Beef has a good program. The problem is, you know, when they write those program specs, they're written for honest people most of the time. And yeah, there's auditors. I've, I've been audited. I just had to fill out my self-audit paperwork and mail that back for Audubon. They're going to do, do an in-person audit next year. And you know what? I don't have to do anything to prepare for it. And that's what I like. Like, I'm not going to have to scramble around for a week. You know, I'm not going to scramble around for a week and hide shit for the, for the auditor. A, I don't know when he's coming. And B, I don't have anything to hide. Yeah. But on the other hand, you, I mean, you can fool inspectors. You can fool auditors. You can lie. So how at the end of the day do we agree on what is regenerative? We, we can't even agree on what is grass fed. Okay. The industry cannot even agree on what is grass fed. We know what grain fed is, but we can't agree on grass fed. And first we have to agree. What is grass fed? How are we going to define grass fed and all agree on that definition? It's kind of like regenerative agriculture. How do we define that? How do we all agree on that? What are the six principles of soil health? You know how long it took every, to get everybody to agree on the six principles of soil health? Yeah. No. I, we argued about that for five freaking years. And there's still people arguing about it. So do you think there's merit then in, say, the, the Audubon, you know, bird friendly? That, that is like one aspect of sort of being regenerative or or whatever conservation minded it's it's value to the consumer in some way and i've i've been involved in that as well and and i think it's generally a good thing do you feel like those types of certifications then can add value to you as the as the producer or does it take the right person to be able to take that certification and market it properly to be able to convert it into value i, I the key is what you just said there at the at the end is the marketing knowledge to be able to take that certification and be able to put your product in front of the correct audience. That's, that's the key. And then that circles back to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago about, about the supply chain link. I mean, like there's, there's thousands of people out here like me that know how to grow good cows. There's people that know how to take care of their grass. There's people that know how to put them on a trailer and take them to the processor and fill out a cut sheet. That's the easy part. The hard part is finding that customer that will pay you the price you're asking without complaint and then getting your product to that customer. That's the problem. Yeah. That's my problem. And I get for some people, that's the easy part. That's just the part that I really, really struggle with. So I think some kind of producer co-op, producer organization, and some kind of agreement on the standards, like just what does grass-fed mean? What does regenerative mean? You know, what, 
what are these claims that we're all making? What do they really mean? Like, and then there's, there's no consensus. And I think it's just going to take, it's just going to take some more time for a consensus like that to emerge. Yeah. It seems like, uh, like, uh, regenified understanding egg, they, they're moving in a, a pretty good direction as far as setting some standards and auditing in a similar way to the way uh, Audubon has been doing. So I, I started hearing about that regenified. It was at least a year ago, maybe like two. And it wasn't something I was like, what I heard, I just wasn't real interested in, but I've been hearing so much about it in the last 90 days. Like I'm going to have to go back and get smart on that regenified program because it's, it's obviously something that people are interested in. It's got people's attention and they're looking at it. So I need to get smart about that. And whether it's them, whether it's Rodale, whether it's HMI, like, look, let's just agree on some shit here. Okay. Let's agree on some stuff here so we can all move forward together in the same context. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. No, but Hey man, this has been a lot of fun. And if I didn't have to leave to get on the road, we'd probably keep going. But, uh, I got a buddy coming. He's supposed to be here. We're riding together. So I got to move on out. What do you, how do you want to end this, Cody? Well, I just appreciate being able to explore some of that, you know, history around bison and how that influences our modern grazing. And, you know, for me, having, having gone through that journey and just keep going deep, deeper and deeper into the soil and, uh, and, and really trying to figure out how do we manage these landscapes for optimal resiliency and profitability and now working with Nicole Masters, Nicole and I just came out with an online grazing course that we developed to help producers manage for soil biology. We built this course. This is something that I wish I would have had in 2015, in 2016, when I was just starting out. And so I want to get that out there. It's called the Grazing for Life course on integritysoils.com. And we'll have a discount code. For listeners, RR20 for 20% off. And so, yeah, people can connect with me through either the Integrity Soils website, LinkedIn. I'm going to be doing a lot more writing on LinkedIn and connecting with people through that avenue. And, you know, if you want to just reach out to me directly, you can reach me at Cody at sweetgrassbison.ca or literally just send me a text or phone call at 403-632-7159. Hang on, my pen's still smoking. I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> All right, I think I got it. I think I got it. Hey, man, this has been a heck of a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully someday our paths will cross and share a cup of coffee or something. That'd be great. It's been so much fun. Thanks, Brian. All right. Well, really appreciate you, Cody Spencer. Thanks for your time. And uh, gang, have a great week. See ya.